Amen. Thank you, choir. Well, it's finally here. The greenery is up. The lights are lit. It's the Christmas season upon us here once again at Woodmont Baptist Church, a time where we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ our Lord in the most humble of circumstances, in a, in a barn, in a manger. And I continue to be humbled as well. I uh, got nudged in the ribs here a second ago by my wonderful bride who said, did you see the coffee cup on the altar that someone left? And I said, yeah, that's mine. I, I, uh, I left it. I, uh, thank you, Bob, for, I saw that was smooth. That was like a ninja, how you, you got that off the, the altar there. I got my mic on this morning and just left it there, but continue to be humbled by uh, the grace of God and, and the beautiful bride that he has brought to me. So thank you for that. I love December. I love the Advent season. It's such an exciting time. I love the music. Can't wait for next week, the celebrate, rejoice, and sing, the Christmas music here with the orchestra, and the choir's been working since like August or something uh, to, to get ready for this amazing morning of worship. I love going to all the, the Christmas parties, I love the, the decorations, I love getting and, and giving presents, of course, I love the food, I even like the cold weather. And as much as I love Christmas, I don't, I don't know if there's anyone on this planet that likes it more than our very own weekday preschool director, Wendy Robbins, who apparently decorates her tree, what, in like September or October or something like that. She has her tree up and she said, I just like to have the lights up. I don't want to just have it up for a month. And then it stays up, I think, through January, February, something like that. But uh, I love her, her zeal for Christmas, her passion for Christmas time. But, you know, it's not really Christmas yet, is it? Trey mentioned that it's the season of Advent. It's according to the church calendar, anyway, Christmas doesn't come until December 25th, right? The liturgical calendar doesn't just have holidays. You know, holidays are holy days, right? Like Christmas and Easter and Ash Wednesday, All Saints Day, all those things that we celebrate in the church calendar. But there's also seasons that are in the liturgical calendar. And as Trey mentioned earlier, today is the first day of the season of Advent. And one of the many great things about being a Baptist, I love being a Baptist, is that we can, uh, you know, take some of these wonderful uh, practices and wonderful aspects of the liturgical church calendar that connects us to the capital C church around the world throughout time and space. We can adopt certain customs and traditions without having to be slaves to them, right? <laughs> we can kind of pick and choose what we use from the liturgical church. You know, there's many churches that won't sing Christmas carols. Richard was saying there's a lot of churches that won't sing Christmas carols until after December 25th. That's kind of a bummer. I don't think Wendy Robbins would stay in this church, would she, Dennis, if we uh, didn't sing? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> But one thing I really do like that a lot of liturgical families do, and, and my wife grew up in a Methodist church and her family always did this, was the nativity sets around their homes. They, they wouldn't put the baby in the manger until December 25th. Anybody do that growing up? Yeah, like a few of you grew up doing that. Where the baby, you would leave out until Christmas morning, and then her mom would go around and put all the little baby Jesuses in the mangers. It, and the cool thing about that is it really does cultivate a sense of expectation, a sense of longing, a sense of waiting for the arrival, not of Santa, but of the Savior on Christmas morning. It's kind of a neat thing. So throughout these four weeks of Advent, historically, Christians have focused on this idea 
of anticipation. Come thou long-expected Jesus, as we just sang earlier. Come, the choir invites Christ Jesus to come as we wait in anticipation of Christmas morning. And the Bible clearly tells us, though, that Advent means more than just Christmas. Because the Bible shows us that there are, in fact, two Advents. And these two Advents are actually the two most important events in the history of everything ever. Think about it. The first Advent literally split time into everything before Christ and everything after Christ. It was the most significant event to ever happen thus far. The second coming will be the other greatest event to ever take place in our world. But it's not all finished yet, right? We know that when Jesus came to earth, it changed everything. It's the climax of the story of everything. We know that God came into our world in the flesh, that we now can claim complete and ultimate forgiveness from our sins, that we have redemption because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ physically walking on our planet. Changes everything. But, it, but it's not all done yet, is it? You see, now you and I live in this kind of in-between time that theologians refer to as the now, but not yet. We live in the now, but not yet. Yes, we've, we've seen God's plan to rescue and redeem all things back into Himself begin to unfold through Jesus Christ. But we still have pain. right? We still have grief like Lynn prayed over earlier. We still have poverty. We still have sickness and disease. We still have war and violence. Relationships are, are broken and they're messy and, and people are difficult. Our, our work is often hard and, and toilsome and unsatisfying. But one day, all that will change. We know that the second advent will change all of that. For good. So this Advent season here at Woodmont, I want us to do something a little different, okay? I want us to, to spend some time focusing on the second Advent, the return of Christ the King. Instead of preaching like I did last year on the, the characters from the Nativity story, Mary and Joseph and, and the shepherds and the angels and maybe a, a cute donkey and some sheep or something. Instead of doing that this year, we're going to try something a little different. It just so happens that in our daily Bible readings, right, as of next week, next Sunday, we're going to start reading through the book of Revelation. Don't panic. I've been preaching each week from the, the books that we're in for that time period in our daily Bible reading plan, and now we're going to be in Revelation for December. You know, when I was in high school, I remember maybe ninth or 10th grade going to summer camp with my youth group. And being the rowdy ninth and 10th grade boys that we were, there were about 10 or 15 of us crammed into a cabin. And instead of sneaking out and getting in trouble, we would take turns actually reading from the book of Revelation, <laughs> trying to freak each other out as best as we could. We attempted to find the, the scariest parts of, of Revelation. And we'd ooh and we'd ah over the terrifying images that are found in the the middle part there of, of the book of Revelation. It says that a red dragon with seven heads and with ten horns on his seven 
crowns is going to come and, and, and wreak havoc on the earth. It says that there's another beast that's going to rise out of the sea. And he's got curse words written on his head. We thought that was hilarious. <laughs> it's great stuff. We couldn't believe that it was actually in the Bible because no one had ever taught us this stuff. This is not something you talk about in Sunday school. The preacher had never mentioned any of this stuff for sure. You know, most people just flat out avoid revelation because of images like these. Most people feel like they don't have the right blueprint to use to, to properly understand revelation. Like maybe they haven't read the, the right books on the end times to be able to properly interpret and figure out what Revelation is really talking about. Maybe they, they feel like they're unqualified to talk about dispensationalism or the millennial reigns, the different uh, theories on the, the historicity of Revelation. Or maybe they just read it and they're just too freaked out. They just find it too crazy to, to actually matter to their lives, to actually apply to the way they live their lives today. A lot of these people, I think, have probably approached the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. You heard that before? The Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. Well, I would say that uh, the, the Bible is no different, really, than anything else in the Bible. And the Revelation is no different than anything else in the Bible. You know, when, when you come to a cosmic story full of, of wild imagery and, and vivid uh, uh, stories and metaphors and this battle in the sky, when you come to that, a lot of people walk away and they say, give me Paul with some like practical illustrations or give me James. Now there's a practical book. Do this. Don't do this. Great. Give me that kind of stuff all day, but don't give me these dragons. But the Bible is anything but basic instructions, isn't it? It's not basic at all. Even James is not basic. If you actually read the Bible too, you'll see that we don't even leave earth, that heaven comes here, according to Revelation. That's the sermon for December 31st, New Year's Eve. Don't miss it. It's going to be good. At its core, the Bible is a story. It's the story of everything ever. It's God's word revealed to us graciously so we can know him and his ways. It's this amazing, multifaceted meta-narrative full of all kinds of different literary genres. There's poetry, there's history, there's prophecy. There's, there's all kinds of uh, amazing works in there and it's all just as God intended for it to be. Therefore, we cannot approach Scripture like we would a textbook. You students still have textbooks, right? Some of them, at least, are paper textbooks. Okay. You can't approach the Bible like you would a cookbook. I hope you got your Woodmont cookbook. There's a few for sale out here still. They're incredible. My son was reading through it, you know, actually reading all the recipes. Eight-year-old son, he found it fascinating. But with a cookbook, you just follow the formula, Right? You, it depends on your efforts and your abilities to follow the formula, and you hope everything turns out right. But the Bible is not a formula. It's not basic instructions. It's not a how-to manual. It's a story that invites us in. It's a story that, that draws us in, into our core, into an, an embodied truth, a truth that we embody and that was embodied by Jesus Christ.
This takes a very different kind of reading. We have to look beyond the printed words on the page, and we have to prayerfully engage our hearts and our imaginations when we read the Bible. Reading the Bible should be like reading a rich love poem full of metaphors that was given to us and written for us by our one true love. It stirs things in you. It invites you to respond. This, this kind of reading gets your heart racing. It gets your mind moving. And it, and it compels you to action. I tend to forget that, honestly. I tend to typically approach my Bible reading as something to check off my list each day. And even then, I find myself, when I'm reading the Bible in my devotional times, I still find myself looking for how I can preach it or how I can teach the Bible that I'm reading for that day. But Revelation, more than any other book, reminds me of how Scripture was meant to be read with our hearts and with our imaginations, praying the whole time through it. Revelation engages us in this kind of spiritual reading. Of course, many people's perception of Revelation has been so warped by the countless end times propaganda books that line the shelves of any Christian bookstore. G.K. Chesterton, who I love, he was this sarcastic kind of British theologian and author who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said, Though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> Did you know that the, the Left Behind books, you know the Left Behind books, these, these books that claim to, to portray what Revelation actually tells us about the rapture and about the millennial uh, reign of Christ and about the Antichrist and the tribulation and the political world rulers. Did you know that those books have sold almost 80 million copies, making them among the best-selling books of all time? They sold like as many books as like a Harry Potter book or like a, the, the, the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown. That was 80 million books. There's so much that's wrong with approaching Revelation through this end times formula, this end times approach. One main reason is that it reduces this amazing and powerful call to discipleship, which is what it is, it reduces it into nothing more than a formula. It becomes a, a, a kind of chronological outline of how the end times are going to unfold as if it's some kind of secret code that you can decipher so that you can tell the future. To read Revelation like this is to impose a, a certain kind of lens over the entire book. It, it gives an interpretive model that you have to force on it. And poetry and stories were never meant to have that kind of model forced onto it. The, poetry was never meant to explain or to describe things in any kind of linear fashion. It's not a science book, is it? The Bible conveys a, a deeper reality. It, it reveals God and His heart to us. It reveals God's ways to us. God's prescriptions for how to flourish and thrive in this world and beyond. It shows us how we can live into God's reality, not 
the surface reality of this world that we see. And that's exactly what Revelation does. It's, it's not meant to tell us how the end times are going to happen. Prophecy is, is not prediction. In the Bible, prophecy is not prediction. It's a promise. It's a promise meant to help us follow Jesus better. To encourage more faithful discipleship as you and I follow the Lamb of God who came to take away our sins and who is coming again. That's the point of Revelation. And it's every bit as relevant to us today in 2017 as it was to the first century churches that heard this message proclaimed. So there's no way that we can really explore this book. I don't want to do like a chapter-by-chapter chapter Bible study here on Sunday morning. That would take way too long. We have five weeks in December, which is great that we get a fifth one, but still not quite enough with 30-minute sermons. So I would encourage you to, to go home and read it on your own, not to freak each other out like I did when I was 15, but so that you can follow the Lamb more closely yourself. And I would recommend a good guide to, to hold your hand along this journey as you read not some wild commentator that tries to, to overlay a schematic approach to interpreting Revelation as end times prophecy only, but, but you need a wise pastor, someone who can, can guide you in the path of discipleship as you read this amazing book. I'm using Douglas Webster's book, Follow the Lamb. I borrowed the title for this series from him. It's my main source really for studying for this series. He's a professor of New Testament at Beeson Divinity School where I got my master's degree. Another guide I'd, rec I'd recommend is Reversed Thunder by Eugene Peterson, the illustrious Eugene Peterson. They, these two books have helped me come to love Revelation more than I ever imagined I ever would. And much of what I will say comes from these two books, honestly. So let's jump in. We're going to cover the initial prologue today of Revelation and then one of the letters to the seven churches. So if you're able this morning, will you stand in honor of God's word as we read Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. This is John's 
gracious introduction to his revelation that he received. And he tells us here how to approach the revelation, how to receive the blessings that are found within the revelation. He tells us plainly that he's going to show us what was shown to him. And he prepares us to engage our imaginations. I hope you are an imaginative kind of person. If you don't enjoy Disney World, you may not enjoy Revelation. If you don't enjoy engaging your imagination, then you may not understand what Revelation is really all about at its core. We know that, that John is the author of this book. John is the apostle, the one that Jesus loved, the one who is part of uh, Jesus' inner circle along with Peter and his brother James. He's an old man by this point. He's been exiled. Most scholars think that John was the only apostle who lived into this ripe old age. The Roman government saw him as a threat, right, after Nero became emperor, so they sent him off to this little Greek island called Patmos. And there on Patmos, he received his revelation in the spirit of the Lord that came upon him. And John has been a leader in the Christian church his entire life. So it's appropriate that Jesus would reveal his revelation for the church to one of the core church leaders, John himself. And he gives him this word to send to the seven churches that are spread across Western Asia Minor, what is now today Turkey. And seven, you know, there's a lot of numbers in Revelation, and you probably will know some of them have meaning, some of them we don't really quite understand, but seven we know means totality. It means completeness. So when it says seven churches here, it actually is referring to all churches, including Woodmont Baptist Church here in Nashville. And at seven, seven different times in the book, John uses this phrase, blessed are the ones who, like a, 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 one of the uh, Beatitudes, blessed is he who, blessed are the ones who, it also means happy. Flourishing are the ones who will do this. Starting here in verse 3, he says that we will be happy, we'll be blessed, we'll flourish if we hear and keep these words. The Greek verb that's used here for keep, tereo, it, it doesn't mean like keep it safe, like in a box, like lock it up tight. It means to keep at it. It means to keep doing it. It means to keep it up, to keep it close to you as part of your everyday life in your walk with Christ. And twice in this passage, John calls us, <coughs> excuse me, to have an urgency about our faith. The things that must soon take place, he says. The time is near, he writes. And it's really important to know that when he says the time is near here, it doesn't mean like our kind of time. You know, the, the Bible, the, the Greek New Testament uses two different words for time. One is chronos, which is like tick-tock time, right? Sequential, linear time. The other word is kairos time. Kairos means the right time, the appointed moment. So again, this is not a sequence. We're looking for this new era, this new way of living in the, the proper moment to be present in the right time that God gives us. So after the prologue, John goes on to describe how the revelation came to him. And starting in verse 9, he says how it came. And he started his revelation with this amazing view of the risen Christ. He saw 
Jesus himself with eyes of fire, with feet of burnished bronze refined in the fire. And Jesus had a voice like the roar of a waterfall. And he says that he was holding seven stars in one hand and a great two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. You see what I'm saying about using your imagination? Just picture this. The sword, the word of God that rightly divides soul and spirit, right, is, is coming forth from the word of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. And of course, John cowers in fear. His first reaction is to, to fall at the feet of Christ. Look at verse 17, and it'll be on the screens too. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But isn't this like Jesus? He condescends gently to us. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So the things that are are contained in chapters 2 and 3. It's, it's seven letters that Christ has for these seven churches that are representative, again, of all churches. He's sending them to these real churches that actually existed in John's time. We've found archaeological evidence of these churches. And I could do a whole sermon series for six months on this, these amazing two chapters, but I just want to read one letter today. Let's look at the last one, the letter to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We parents know that, don't we? Those whom we Love, we reprove, and we discipline. So be jealous, just be zealous, not jealous, zealous, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We know from history that Laodicea was a, a very wealthy town. It was the, the leading city in the, the Roman region of Phrygia. It was known as kind of an it city. They had a top-notch medical school. 
And they actually cultivated a salve that would go on people's eyes. They had a research hospital there in, in Laodicea. It was famous all over the empire for its special exports. And it was a growing city. Reminds you of another city that you can think of? Naturally, the, the people of Laodicea didn't see themselves as lacking anything. They certainly didn't see themselves to be pitied. They didn't see themselves as poor or blind or, or naked. Of course, they said, we have the best garments in the world. We're famous for our garments all over Rome. This is the only letter, however, out of all seven letters, where Jesus doesn't find anything in the church in Laodicea to commend. In all the other six letters, he says, hey, this is really good about your church, but here's some things you can work on. The church in Laodicea just flat out disgusts him. They're not hot or cold, which means they're good for nothing. Think about it. Hot shower, hot bath, whatever, cleanses you. It opens your pores, right? It relaxes sore muscles. It, it's good to breathe in for your, for your sinuses, Hot water is used for cooking, right? For, for boiling things. Cold water, there's nothing better than a cup of cold water on a hot day to refresh. You scientists tell us that of all the, the sports supplements out there, that H2O is the best thing you could possibly put in your body as an athlete. Water, cold water, refreshes and rejuvenates like nothing else. This used to be, when I read this, I thought about like spiritual fervor, like being on fire for God, right? That's not really what it's talking about. What, what, what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea is, you're not good for anything. You're not effective for my kingdom because you're lukewarm. You're, you're just neither hot nor cold. You're not really effective for doing anything that I want to accomplish in the Roman province of Phrygia. You know, I've said all along that Woodmont Baptist Church here has all the potential in the world. Think about it. We, we have some truly wonderful, godly, wise people in this church who selflessly give of themselves day in, day out. We have so many volunteers in this church who give of themselves behind the scenes, not for any credit, but because they love the Lord. Jesus, we have amazing lay leaders and deacons in this church. We have one of the best locations for a church in all of Nashville, in all of this whole city. We have a beautiful, huge facility at our disposal that we can use for, for Christ's kingdom. We have an incredible staff right now of gifted, godly, wise men and women who I love serving with day in and day out. And yes, God is on the move here. Lives are being changed. But... A hundred people are moving to our city every day. About a half mile south of us here down the road, there's over 300 condos that are going to open in the next couple months. The spiritual need of this city is immense. Will we boldly take the gospel to the city in word and in deed, fulfilling Christ's mission for Woodmont and for Nashville in a city that desperately needs it. Because if we don't, I'm afraid that, that we'll just be lukewarm. That we'll be ineffective as the body of Christ on earth. So how do we do it? How, how do we accomplish what Christ is calling us to do? 
Well, we simply have to let Jesus back in. See, the, the part about him standing at the door and knocking doesn't mean that he's outside the door of your heart. You know, you've, if you grew up in an evangelical church like I did, you probably heard some evangelists say, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Let him in your heart today. That's not really what this is saying. See, we read in Hebrews that the house of God is what? It's the people of God, right? And who's the master of the house? Jesus Christ. It's not like he's some door-to-door salesman who's coming around to the doors of our hearts. He's not some transient who needs a place to crash and is knocking on your door. He's knocking on the door of his own house because we have kicked him out. That's what this is saying. That's what this is saying. We've left him outside of his own house. And now Jesus, as the master, has every right to storm in with a whip and say, my house was to be a house of prayer. Get out. He could kick everybody out of his house. But that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of Jesus. Instead of kicking us all out of his house, in a moment of unbelievable love and humility, he lowers himself to knocking on his own front door. Jesus actually requests permission from us to come in to his own house and to eat with us and to commune with us in fellowship with him, God in the flesh. That's what really Advent is all about. God coming from heaven on high to be with us where we are, to dwell among us, to move into our neighborhood, as Peterson says. Not by force, but as a baby in a barn. That's why the Messiah's name is to be called, Isaiah says, Emmanuel, God with us. And he didn't force his way in. Jesus could have shown up as God in the flesh on a mighty war horse with an invincible angel army right behind him at his disposal, ready to, to make right this whole world and put all the wrongs to right. But that's never been the way of the kingdom of God. It's not by violence. It's not by force. He stands outside the door and gently knocks, patiently waiting for you and me to let him in to his own house. So there's three practical ways, let me just close briefly, how how to let Jesus in this Advent season. First, confess and acknowledge the reality that we are indeed poor and blind and pitiable. We're, We're without covering apart from Christ. Jesus told his apostles in the upper room, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither can you unless you abide in me. No matter how successful the world may deem us, we are powerless and helpless apart from Christ. Too often the the church in America resembles the church in Laodicea. It, It can become a Christless Christianity We had to scramble this morning to find the Christ candle to go in the Advent wreath. I said, that's a perfect illustration for the sermon. (laughs) A Christless Christianity has no power. It has no meaning apart from Christ. He is the reason for everything we do and are. Second thing, connect to Christ's body, his church. Fellowship with Christ takes place in the context of his house. The people of God. 
Surround yourself this Advent season with godly people, with believers who love Jesus and who encourage you and spur you on to love and good works like we talked about in Hebrews chapters 10. Finally, come and buy pure gold. Come and and, and purchase the amazing wealth of resources that are yours and mine in Christ Jesus through his riches. You may say, how can we buy gold if we're poor and blind and, and pitiable? It's only through grace that we're able to receive the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. True hope, true peace, true joy, true love that fills our hearts to overflowing are available through the matchless grace of God. Come and make them your own today. Confess your need of Christ. Connect to His body. Come and buy what only He can give you. One of my all-time favorite Christmas songs describes this idea of Christ coming to us to give us all these resources. It's called I Will Find a Way by Andy Gullahorn. Let me close today by reading you these lyrics. At the end of this run-down tenement hall is the room of a girl I know. She cowers behind all the deadbolt locks, afraid of the outside world. So how should I come to the one I love? I will find a way. Many thieves and collectors have used that door, but they only brought her shame. So she won't even open it anymore. Still, I will find a way. I could call out her name with love through the walls, but condemnation is all she hears. I could break down the door, take her in my arms, but she might die from the fear. So how should I come to the one I love? I will find a way. I will find a way. How should I come to the one I love? I will find a way. No hiding place ever kept her safe, so she hides inside herself. Now to reach her heart, the only way is to hide in there as well. I will hide in there as well. She gave up on love, waiting for a change, but a change is coming soon. Because how could she not love the helpless babe who is waking in her womb? I found a way. She'll know I'm coming before I am here. When she hangs her head, she'll see me there. And then when I come, she won't turn away. All the beauty and joy will return to her face. And what of the loneliness? Now it is gone, lost in the bond of a mother and son. Every sin that she suffered at the hands of men, every single disgrace will be washed clean again. I will love her completely. And when I am grown, I will carry her out of that tenement home. I am doing a new thing, and soon you will see. I am coming among you, and my name shall be Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, the knowledge that you came among us and dwelt in the flesh is too wonderful for our hearts to grasp or for our minds to wrap around. God, our hearts would burst. Our minds would explode if we knew what it meant that you condescended. You, the high and holy God of the universe, put on flesh, that you lowered yourself 
Even when we kicked you out of your own house, you patiently waited outside, knocking, waiting for us to let you back in. Lord God, I pray that this Advent season, you would remind us of the riches that are available to us by your grace. God, help us to receive the gift of your presence, to abide in you and let you abide in us in such a powerful and profound way that it stirs our hearts and compels our bodies to act. May this Advent season be one of true hope, true peace, true joy, and true love that are only found in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who came to rescue us and who is coming again to make all things new. Help us to navigate this now but not yet time. Help us to follow the Lamb more and more closely each day as we anticipate his return. We pray this all in your high and your holy name. The name of Jesus Christ, amen. If this morning you feel like God's coming to you in a special way to be with you, and he's knocking on the door of his church this morning, you're ready to let him in. You're ready to, to invite him in, not only into this house, but into the house of his people, your heart where he resides. Then I encourage you, don't delay. Come and talk to me during this invitation time about what it means to Receive the gift of salvation that God offers you freely through Christ Jesus. Maybe you need a church family to call your own and, and you've, you've, you've not taken the plunge yet and become a member of this church. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to become a member of Woodmont Baptist Church during this special Advent season. I can't wait to celebrate the next three weeks with you. It's going to be a beautiful, wonderful season. Let us stand and sing our hymn of invitation. His name is called Emmanuel.